From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. I think that marketers today and sales leaders today are taking a much more holistic look at revenue and connecting marketing and selling. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today my guest is Heidi Mellon, who has served as CMO at multiple iconic companies, including Hyperion, Eloqua, Informix, and Taleo. Heidi Mellon might be the only executive in Silicon Valley whose companies have been acquired by Oracle four times and yet never ended up working at the database juggernaut. On today's show, we'll get Heidi's take on the infamous hostile takeover of PeopleSoft, as well as the 10 pieces of advice she gave to her 20-somethings who were in the process of launching into their own marketing careers. Let's jump into the conversation. Heidi, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Justin. We have a lot to talk about today. I wanted to start, though, with a very interesting claim of fame. You're very proud of it. We talked a little bit uh, a little while ago, and this is the first thing you brought up. Tell me about Pools Corner. (laughs) Pools Corner is actually a place in Calaveras County, and I happen to be a fifth-generation Californian. So, um, So my ancestors came over before the gold rush. And um, so there are very few people who are fifth generation Californians today, and my kids are even sixth generation Californians. So, um, so there's actually a place named after my ancestors in Calaveras County, and uh, they were all merchants in the gold rush. So they weren't gold miners, but they were merchants. So kind of an interesting story, fun when you're, when you're studying the gold rush and uh, to have ancestors that were a part of it. And of course, the merchants were were the true benefactors or beneficiaries of the gold rush. So you have a long history of business in your family, it sounds like. That's exactly right. And the merchants, you know, you know, supported the gold rush, but then they they stayed and um, supported the growth of California even beyond the gold rush. So um, it's cool to live in a place that that I have lots of roots. And some great companies came out of that. Levi Strauss actually was one of the big and lasting results of the go- the gold rush. Yep, that's exactly right. I'm certain my ancestors sold Levi's. <laughs> All right. Well, since we are kind of in the past right now, let's open up and maybe maybe share with me an early memory that you had from your childhood. One of the first memories that I have is is as a child, probably four years old. Uh, where um, we had a babysitter that would come during the day when my mom went to work. And um, I don't even remember what her name was, but I called her morning because she came in the mornings. <laughs> she had the morning shift. She had the morning shift. And so so she always came in the morning. And so that's what we called her. And, um, and I really experienced my mom, uh, how she left the house during the day and um, the graceful exit that she would make leaving me in the the careful hands of mourning. And um, and it is one of the first memories that I have is being in that setting and saying goodbye and being very happy because mourning was there to play with me all day. And uh, so that's something that I've they've taken away is how gracefully my mom did that and um, and tried to do the same thing with my children as well. That's an intriguing word, graceful. Tell me a little bit more about why you choose that particular word. 
it's the way in which someone interacts with you and how they treat you. And um, and to me, that's something that I've tried to always carry through, um, not only my personal life, but also my professional life is having that that grace in what you do. And um, and so that was important to me. And that was a skill or a trait um, characteristic, for example, that that is has become very important to me. The fact that in life, there are so many transitions that we undergo, and especially as we interact with people, as they come into our life and out of our life, uh, it's a critical aspect of the way that we interact with one another, especially in business. And I can't help but wonder if that example that your mother set for you early in life helped you as you would then interact with others and make those transitions into and out of their lives. Yeah, I'm certain that it did. I mean, we all know those situations that lack grace where people have acted in a less than graceful way. And we remember those as well. Um, and so I definitely think that it's something that I've carried forward and um, and that I keep in mind, you know, on an every situation basis is really truly trying to bring that into situations. And, and we all remember the situations that weren't handled gracefully. So I also love the fact that you called your babysitter morning, a very, a very pragmatic approach to naming And since we're both marketers, we can talk about the different schools of thought when it comes to coming up with brands. I think that you would actually get along very well. We'll talk about this in a minute. Larry Ellison very much subscribes to this practical name the product exactly what it does. So I think he would have approved of mourning as a name for your babysitter. Why try and have someone figure out what the name means? Why not just be straightforward and pragmatic about it? So mourning is a great example. That's right. At what point in your life did you decide it was time to break the mold, really go against the grain? Well, I, I actually think it was not until I finished college and I attended a liberal arts college in Oregon, and it was the same college that my father and my uncle attended. So it was very much a family school. And um, But after college, I made sort of an interesting decision, um, and that decision was to go and work for a national sorority for a year. I had been involved in the Greek system on campus at my university, and I had the opportunity to be a field consultant with the national organization. And it was an unexpected track, especially for uh, someone who majored in German and political science. And uh, so I did sort of break the mold. Everyone sort of said, what what is Heidi going to do for a year? But it was one of the best experiences and foundational to everything that I've done since then. I can just imagine that dinner conversation. Mom and dad, I had a wonderful experience in college. The sorority was great. I'm going to go full time into this thing. I think I could make a run at it. That's exactly right. Where (laughs) everyone sort of looks at you like, "Are, are you kidding? Like you're finished with that. That chapter's closed. And, um, and frankly, it was, it was a really challenging job. And it was it was not uh, traveling around the country and going to fraternity parties as most people expect. It actually was a very challenging job that that set me up for having um, some great skills from a business perspective and truly understanding how a multi billion dollar nonprofit operates and uh, very very good skills and great learning and. Very challenging from a travel perspective, too. You you must have been all over the country. All over the country. I focused mostly in the Northeast, Northeast, which was great because I was from the West Coast. So I got to see a different part of the country. 
Um, and I was in a different place every four days. So you learned that snow is not always your friend. <laughs> I did. I thought growing up in California, I'm a snow skier. I spend time at Tahoe. I thought for sure I knew what snow was until I found myself at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York, where it gets much colder than it does at Tahoe. And so I had some good learning there on the job, so to speak. So how do uh, how do they deal with the snow? The I'm sure sub zero temperatures in Colgate. Was there anything unexpected? Any moments that you hadn't anticipated? My my favorite and most memorable moment was when the students from the chapter at Colgate called me, and my apartment where I was living at the time was down on uh, in town, so it was on a lower level, and the university was up on a hill. And the students had called me, it was probably January, and they said, oh, they just put the ropes down, you can come up to campus. And I was like, what What do you mean they put the ropes down? And it was blustery, cold, icy, terrible, treacherous weather. And they actually put ropes down so that students can get up and down the hills without falling and injuring themselves. And so I said, there is no way... I am going to come up onto campus and use ropes. How about you guys come down and meet with me down, <laughs> down in town? So it was a good learning experience uh, across the board. So very unexpected. I, I can relate to that. I went to UCLA. I too am a San Francisco native. So that's something we have in common. I went to UCLA though. So for us, a cold day is if you had to wear socks. Right. And then went to Boston uh, for business school and never really lived in the snow before. For me, the moment of reckoning, it what they didn't lay the ropes down necessarily, but I remember I was late for an interview and I came outside and the snowplow had just been by and it completely covered my car in snow. So I'm like, how do I get my car? I don't have a shovel. So I just kind of started scraping it away with my hands. 15 minutes into the episode, I realized that I'm actually not uncovering my car. I'm uncovering someone else's car. <laughs> so I like to think that that was my altruistic moment for the day. And then I had to go find my car. But it's uh, it's a harrowing experience for us West Coasters when we actually have to deal with the snow for the first time. That's exactly right. For me, <laughs> snow was snow was vacation and going up to Tahoe for a couple of days and hitting the slopes. But this became like day to day life. And uh, and it was much more challenging than I had anticipated. All right. So at what point did you make this transition? You're in you're you're working for the sorority. You're making it work. At what point did the career path start to diverge and when did you get into marketing? So I actually, after spending the year working um, as a field consultant, um, that role was just a year. You really can't travel full time like that for longer than a year. And I decided when I came back that I wanted to go into advertising. I wanted to come back to San Francisco. Um, and at that time, you know, B2C advertising, brands like Levi, brands like Gap, brands like Clorox were all based in the San Francisco area. And it was really cool to be in advertising. And so I thought, of course, that's what I'll do. And um, and so that's what I did. And the difference between what I thought I was going to do and what I did was I actually joined an agency that was really focused on technology at the time. And um, less cool than Clorox or Gap as examples. Um, but it was early days for Silicon Valley and where technology companies were really starting to 
understand the value of investing in marketing and the importance of a value proposition versus speeds and feeds. And I found that I really liked it. I didn't have a technical background, um, but I had the ability to understand the technology and I loved the opportunity to help communicate it. And so um, I joined an agency and I stayed on the agency side for about seven years and had the opportunity to work on some of the most formidable brands in, um, in technology at the time, some of which don't exist anymore, some of which still exist today. I definitely hear you on the uh, on the draw of these big brands. As I was coming out of business school, I was also excited to be in marketing, but thought about the big uh, CPG companies, Cloroxes and and the Procter and Gamble. And I loved. I was so excited about the products because I use the products every day. I also found myself in technology, and unexpectedly, like you, there was this whole new world that was kind of foreign to me, but kind of intriguing. And part of the joy of that time in my career was just learning these things for the first time, really jumping in and and discovering I could understand them. And more importantly, I could talk about these in a way that made a connection to the people that we were trying to reach. Yeah, that's really what I found that I loved as well, where it might be a really technical topic or technical product, um, but people were still buying that product and being able to uh, really craft a value proposition and um, be able to get down to not just what are the features and functions that are being delivered with that technology, but what outcomes does it deliver? And um, I found that I really liked that. And at the time, it wasn't as cool to be in tech in the Bay Area as it was to be in consumer or work for a CPG company, but it certainly became much more cool over time. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. So as a working for an agency, one of the one of the great aspects of that is you get to be exposed to lots of different companies involved in a lot of different campaigns, programs. Maybe share with us one of your favorite campaigns or programs that you were involved in. Uh, hands down, my favorite campaign was I had the opportunity to work on Informix, which was a database company. And at that time, Informix was more of the database for geeky nerds that that wanted to be in Unix. And um, and Oracle and Sybase were the big players at the time. And it was during the uh, time frame where the database wars were going on. It was less about the applications that ran on the database, more about what was your choice of database. And um, had the opportunity to work on Informix, again, an underdog. And uh, we did a uh, a billboard campaign on 101, going down the peninsula, which was a highly trafficked, still is, very highly trafficked area with lots of billboards. And we did a billboard that actually had, right, you know, that had was in, from Informix, but had Oracle in the rear view mirror. And it was about Oracle being being the legacy technology in this case, and Informix being the fast-moving, front-moving, technology-oriented leader. And um, it apparently made Larry Ellison a little angry, apparently, because he drove that way, which we might have known. And, um, and it created quite a buzz. And actually, the outcome ended up being that 
Oracle and Sybase began including Informix in their database war, validating Informix's role as one of those top tier database players. And so it was a really exciting campaign to work on because so many people saw it and the outcome was 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 a direct outcome that you could see. So for those that aren't in the Bay Area, 101 is a an iconic freeway. It connects San Francisco on one end to Sand Hill Row on the other road on the other, which is where all the VCs are. And you've got a lot of companies that are headquartered out there. So as people are going and coming from work, and also that's where the San Francisco International Airport is. So as people are coming in, everybody is seeing the billboards. And in a certain respect, if you've put a billboard on 101, you've made it and really made a statement. I love the fact that that Larry saw that. And, and knowing Larry, I, I'm sure that didn't sit well with him. Now, ironically, Oracle is public enemy number one for you. And yet you have a very storied career with Oracle. So let's talk a little bit about that. Tell us about the relationship you had with Oracle. I do. I have a um, an interesting relationship with Oracle. I think I'm one of the few senior executives that has been acquired by Oracle, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, including two of those within a 12-month period. So I, I'm not sure that anyone else has that story. Um, uh, one of those was a hostile takeover with PeopleSoft and uh, lots of learnings there, lots of terrific experience, a really uh, long 19 months of a hostile takeover that I don't ever want to relive, but it was fantastic experience. And then the other three acquisitions were friendly acquisitions, the acquisition of Hyperion and then Taleo and finally Eloqua. And so... Um, Great experience. I made the choice in all cases not to go work for Oracle, only because when you transition a smaller company into a much larger organization like that, the roles don't necessarily match up. And I really wanted to go and grow another business. So in the case of Taleo and Eloqua, 11 months after I joined Eloqua, we were acquired by Oracle. So that was the two in one 12-month period. Highly acquisitive. Oracle is famous for buying companies and for the playbook that they wrote in terms of integrating companies into the larger corporation. I was at Siebel. We were acquired by Oracle. So I can I can definitely empathize with the experience that you went through. It's interesting, though, because you talked about how PeopleSoft was a, a tremendous challenge with hostile takeover versus the other three. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to be on the inside of a company that is the target of a hostile takeover. Well, it was a it's a fascinating story that we could probably spend three or four podcasts on. But um, but overall, PeopleSoft had just acquired another very large company called JD Edwards, and that was five days prior to the hostel being initiated by Oracle. And so we had a lot going on. And um, and as a part of the marketing team that was on board, we were sort of at the front end of the spear in fighting the hostel. You know, it's nothing like working for a company where every morning you're in the news about something. And there were fascinating stories that went back and forth. Um, and l- literally, we fought tooth and nail for 19 months. And um, that was about... Uh, continuing PeopleSoft as a as a independent company, and the cultures of the two companies were very very different. Um, even the cultures of the customers were very different 
in many cases. And so, um, so it was a fascinating, um, 19 months. And I say 19 months where it was literally 24 by seven. All of us were focused on different elements of, of, um, the hostile takeover. In my case, I actually had the opportunity to help run the integration of JD Edwards because you acquire a billion dollar company and we, we hadn't started on the integration yet when the hostel started. So we needed people to focus on integrating that billion dollar company. And so I had the opportunity to do that as well. So it's nothing like doing an integration under the pressure of a hostile takeover at the same time. And it was an extremely interesting time from a career perspective. And as I said earlier, I, I don't necessarily want to repeat it, nor would I recommend it for anyone. <laughs> but we all learned a lot of lessons during that time frame. I think what if you haven't been through any kind of an acquisition, the process of being acquired, let alone a hostile takeover, you don't realize the emotional impact that that has the the impact on the psyche. What were the feelings that were engendered among the people at, at PeopleSoft as this whole thing was was transpiring? From an employee standpoint, it was really like the enemy was trying to attack us. And yeah. in the truest sense of the word, I mean, there was a lot, very strong culture that was built at PeopleSoft. Um, and at that point, prior to the hostel, I had already been at PeopleSoft for quite a while, I think seven-ish years. And, um, and really strong company culture. And the people were really the centerpiece of that culture. And... Um, the thought of going to work for, you know, in the case of Oracle, the big bad enemy um, was very upsetting to folks. And so there was a lot of catalyzing as employees and mm -hmm. um, and lots of programs that happened. You know, we all had buttons that had Oracle and a slash through it. And it was very dramatic. And yeah. um and, and yet, at the same time, it really demonstrated the importance of company culture and how you can galvanize a team under those sorts of circumstances. But it was truly like fighting an enemy. What's your advice for people that are in the throes of that kind of an experience to help them not only survive, but, but perhaps even thrive through the process? I, I would say um, take everything as learning. Um, you're going to make mistakes along the way. We certainly made mistakes at PeopleSoft. Um, at the same time, um, crisis communications is a real thing, and there are experts in crisis communications. And uh, and one of the things that we did do very early on at PeopleSoft is bring in crisis communications experts in order to help support us. And in any case, whether it's an acquisition or any other crisis, there are experts that that make a living on doing crisis communications. And um, that is, it's a, it's a real thing and it's an important component and that's for external communications as well as employee communications. How many people stuck around after the acquisition? You know, it's interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I know that there were thousands, literally thousands of people that left on the day the acquisition was finalized in January of 2005, um, from a marketing standpoint, we transitioned less than 2% of the marketing team to Oracle. So it was one small team. And um, and frankly, most of the team members wanted to go and do something different because it's hard to, to, you know, one day just flip a switch and say, 
okay, you were the enemy for 19 months. Now we'd like to work together collaboratively. And that's a really hard thing to do. And um, and I can't speak to the percentages across the other parts of the organization, but I know from a marketing standpoint, we only transitioned 2% of the team. So what's fascinating then, you mentioned Taleo, Eloqua, um, and Hyperion. Why were those acquisitions so much more uh, friendly in nature than the PeopleSoft? Well, first of all, they were welcome. They were welcome offers to buy the business, and so that in itself sets a sets a um, a uh, tone to the acquisition that it is truly not hostile. It is a situation where the executive team and the board is all in support of the acquisition. So that sets a tone. Um, also, outcome for the business. At that time, the perception was that Oracle wasn't necessarily going to be the best home for the uh, PeopleSoft technology over time. And um, in the case of Hyperion, in the case of Taleo, in the case of Eloqua, there were really strong reasons why we could see the technology roadmap accelerating for our customers inside of the scale that Oracle had. Um, PeopleSoft was also the first big acquisition that that Oracle did. So there wasn't really a track record of, of how they were handled. Um, whereas Hyperion and Taleo and Eloqua, it was after uh, Oracle had really established a track record of uh, being extremely acquisitive and integrating the technologies in different ways. And so the home for the technology, the home for the customers, the home for the employees was a much perceived as a much more positive thing in all three cases. I did want to go deeper on Hyperion. Godfrey Sullivan, CEO at the time, he's a friend of the show, obviously went on to uh, make Splunk the legendary company that it was. So in business circles, he's really recognized as one of the great leaders in technology. Tell me a little bit about the nature of your relationship with him. And more specifically, what did you learn from him? I learned so much from Godfrey, one of my favorite CEOs on the planet, um, and also one of the nicest humans. Um, Godfrey is, uh, he took a risk on me. He hired me at Hyperion into my first CMO role. And at that time, Hyperion was a public company. It was over 700 million in revenue. And, um, and he took a risk cause I had not been a CMO before. And I really not only appreciate him doing that, but also appreciated how he, um, how he managed the Hyperion team and the, um, collaborative style and consensus building style that he brought to the executive team and to the boardroom. And I learned so much from him from a style perspective. Um, he really has the ability to listen and build teams in a way that I haven't seen from a lot of C CEOs. And he's definitely top notch. I remember the first time that I met Godfrey, we actually had a chance to grab breakfast together. And we sat down and he said, tell me a little bit about yourself. Of course, I started to talk about my business background. And he said, no, uh, you know, what were you like growing up? And it was kind of a disarming question. But in the end, there was a lot of wisdom to that because I think he gained a little bit of insight into me that he wouldn't otherwise. Actually, in an interesting way, that was those questions were kind of the origin of this show and, and how we do this show, where you get into someone's backstory to really illuminate who they are today. Yeah, he, he definitely cares about people and um, is an excellent listener. I would also say he, you know, really supported gender diversity at Hyperion, not just by uh, 
by saying it was important, but actually demonstrating it was important. And uh, I, you know, he was, he, he definitely pioneered some of the programming from a gender diversity perspective that didn't exist at the time in Silicon Valley and now exists in a much more significant way. So great run at Hyperion. Tell me a little bit about Polycom. I know that you, you've mentioned that that was not one of the bright spots on your resume per se. Uh, how, how did you go to Polycom and, and what happened there? Yeah, so I, I would say Polycom, great brand. Um, one of the reasons why I joined Polycom is because the company was going through a shift in um, really taking on a serious leadership position in high-definition video conferencing and telepresence. Um, all the things that really make it make it available to us today to do things like Zoom and Blue Jeans and um, were really early stage at Polycom at that time. So it was fascinating to me. It was a bit of a left turn, though, because I had been in software essentially for my entire career. And Polycom really was a hardware company. And, um, and so I learned that the pace of a hardware company is different than the pace of a software business. And I learned that I liked the pace of a software business a lot more. Um, I, you know, it was a, it was a great three and a half years where I got to learn a ton about not only how a hardware business works, but also they're highly channel driven. So 98% of the revenue went through the channel. And so I got to learn a tremendous amount about channel, channel marketing, which was very different than the direct selling environment that I had, had been accustomed to. And so there was tons of learning for me at Polycom, but I really did decide that I wanted to go be back in software that that hardware didn't move quite as quickly and was maybe a little more engineering centric than I was interested in doing. So so that's why it would be not so bright a spot, but great experience. I I need to have you share the story about uh, you made an observation about the way that one of the pieces of technology work brought it to the attention of an engineer. Uh, That was a classic. What, What happened there? So this this was a day that really was the day that I decided, gosh, maybe this hardware thing isn't for me. And what really happened is in my office at Polycom, because we manufactured high definition video conferencing systems, I had an HD video conferencing system in my office. And I was sort of learning to use it. And and um, and there was a part of it that was really frustrating to me, where I would take the remote control, just like on your home television, um, I would take the remote control and I would hit the go left arrow, arrow and the camera would go right. And I hit the go right arrow and the camera would go left. And I, I assumed that it was a setting that I had clicked incorrectly. And, um, and there was an engineer that happened to come by my office and I stopped him and I'm like, can you just come in here and look at this one thing? Because I know it's something easy to fix. I'm sure I pressed a button wrong or did something. And, um, and I said, when I press it, it goes the wrong way. And he said, looked at me straight, straight faced and said, oh, well, no, that's the way it's supposed to work. It's from the camera's angle. And I was like, oh, no. Okay. So this is an engineering centric organization. And they designed the product from the product's perspective, which made all the sense in the world to the engineer. And I was like, what about the human that has to use it? And so that was the moment that I was like, oh, maybe I should go back and do this, this software thing again. You know, it's a hilarious story, but 
I think partially because we've all been in that situation where we've built products or we've marketed and sold products from the perspective of the company, from the product. And it can't, it is so easy to get sucked into that mindset and forget that there's a human being on the other end of this that may see the world very differently than you do. Well, and the poor engineer, he was just explaining it to me. Just like it made perfect sense. Perfect sense. And I was like, <laughs> that can't be right. And so, yeah, that was that was an in- interesting observation and one that that has stuck with me. That's Heidi Mellon, former CMO of Eloqua. When it comes to picking winners, Heidi has one of the best track records in Silicon Valley. When we come back, she'll share her secret for spotting great companies. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Heidi Mellon, former CMO of Eloqua. After serving as CMO for multiple leading companies, Heidi knows what great looks like. Her no-nonsense formula for picking the right places to work should be pinned to every rising marketer's bulletin board. Let's get back to the discussion. All right, so you've been in the CMO chair multiple times now, and I find it fascinating that you had these acquisitions, so obviously great exits. What is the rationale that you use to pick a company? How do you pick a winner? There's a couple of things that are really important to me. Relationships are really important. Um, I've had the benefit for the last, gosh, four CMO roles that I've been in that I've gone to work for someone that I know and trust and have worked with before. And so those relationships you build over time are so valuable. And really knowing that my values match the person that you're working with. And um, so that is a part of it. The other piece is I I really like growth companies. And I like growth companies that are really – Um, either disrupting a market or changing and reshaping a market. Um, A great example is I joined Plex Systems, which is cloud-based ERP for manufacturers, and disrupting the ERP space for manufacturing. That was really interesting to me. Um, You know, with, with Taleo, it was about expanding beyond recruiting and creating a category called talent management, which exists today. Um, with Hyperion, it was you know not just just a financial performance, but adding BI to that and having enterprise performance management. And so that ca- companies that have the ability to create a category um, are really interesting to me. And then those relationships are extremely valuable. So I'm going to go out on a limb, but it seems like you had the intuitive sense that relationships were critical to business, maybe even in that first job out of school when you were working for the sorority. Yeah, there's no there's no doubt about it. Um, it it's something that uh, that from a skill set standpoint, people that are able to apply the importance of relationships, not only to their personal life, because that's sort of intuitive to all of us, but to their professional life. I think those are people who who do really, really well. Um, because those relationships are really important. So the concept of not burning a bridge, you know, it sounds so cliche, but it's really true. And building relationships that matter is important. I mean, it's not just, you know, the number of connections you have on LinkedIn, but how many people can you actually pick up the phone and have a conversation with that can help provide you guidance or input or, um, or advice along the way? Those are the kind of relationships that become really important. 
So as a seasoned CMO, what's your top piece of advice for a marketer that's on the rise? I would say first and foremost, what I just said, which is relationships. That's truly how folks are able to build their careers. And I would also say manage your, manage your personal brand. As marketers, we're all really good at managing the brands of the companies we work for. Um, but think about what your personal brand is and what people say when you're not in the room. And um, and that's a really important part of being a marketer. And uh, so if you're getting started, those things are really important. As you built marketing organizations, what were the bedrock principles that you always tried to come back to? Well, it's always been people first. And um, as I go into an organization, one of the first things I do is, is look at the organization, look at the how the organization is structured and, um, and, and what are we trying to achieve. And sometimes those things get out of whack over time and you can't really see it. And so stepping back far enough to look at who are the people, what are the skills that you have, what are the skills that you need to do the job, and how do you best accomplish that? And in some cases, it means you need different skills that happens. Sometimes it needs means you need to support people in order to develop new skills. And uh, that to me is one of the foundational things to do. And then it's the technology. What's your infrastructure look like? What is the technology and business process that supports your job? And, um, and those are two things that are pretty, that I evaluate really uh, quickly after I come on board um, into a role, but it is definitely people first. I wanted to talk a little bit about a term which is used a lot. I don't know if we necessarily understand it as well as we should. And the term is customer advocacy. When you hear that term, what comes to mind and, and how have you incorporated that notion into the organizations that you've built? Customer advocacy is thrown around a lot. And some people, when they say customer advocacy, they mean that customers are willing to be referenceable. For example, that they'll pick up the phone and say, yes, I use this product or this service. Um, I think of advocacy as something much bigger than that. And um, certainly it includes the ability that customers will uh, be a reference for you or produce a case study, for example. But more importantly, it's can those customers, will they, are they able to explain your company's narrative through their accomplishments? And when you think about what is it that that a customer can say much better than those of us who are the marketers, having a customer talk about the benefits of your product, of your service, of your company is so much more powerful. And being able to leverage that voice, not just in a case study, not just in a quote on the website, but across the board and, um, and truly making those customers an extension of the business so they can advocate for you in the market. And um, so I think of advocacy as an extremely powerful competitive weapon. Companies that have invested in strong customer relationships sometimes forget to leverage those relationships. And um, it's magic when you can identify a customer who really wants to tell his or her story, and that story includes the benefit of your company, your product, your service, marry those two things together and, um, and help them tell their story. And that, to me, is what customer advocacy is. And um, it's magic when it happens right. Can you give us an example from your career where you've really been able to build a true customer advocate? 
Yeah, I um, the first one that comes to mind, there have been many along the way, but the first one that comes to mind would be um, when I was at Plex Systems. So Plex was a regionally based software company that was trying to create visibility and a brand around cloud-based manu- ERP for manufacturing and, um, and had a great customer list. And one of those customers was a very large multi-billion dollar wheel manufacturer called AccuRide. Now, you and I have probably never heard of AccuRide, but they're a giant company. They make wheels. I love AccuRide. They're my favorite. Of all the wheel manufacturers out there, (laughs) they are my favorite. favorite. But very large company. And their CIO is someone that was, was... was truly doing things differently inside of AccuRide, which is a company that started in the early 1900s, wheels, a long time ago, right? And and he was truly evangelizing and helping to uh, modernize AccuRide as a business. And part of that was the investment in Plex Systems. And so he really wanted a platform to talk about how he was changing how manufacturing was done at this multi-billion dollar manufacturer that had a long, long history. And we helped him get that platform and you know he got a big promotion out of it he's been he's been uh represented industry wide as a leader in the industry and it just demonstrated to me that magic when you can find the right individual within the right customer that has a great story to tell that happens to include your product your service your company it's magic and that was magic for plex systems I like to think as a marketer that in many respects, our job is creating this theater, this stage and bringing an audience to it. But then it's so important who you put up on that stage. The The people that you want on that stage are authentic. They're telling meaningful stories. They're connecting with the audience. And to your point, so many times I think we overlook the true unsung heroes, our customers that are doing great things. And when you find that person and they just come to life, they've got something to say, it is a wonderful experience for everybody. Yeah, it's it is it truly is magical and um, and helps personalize the brand as well and um, creates goodwill with with other customers as well because other customers look at it and they're like, I want to be that guy. The other topic I wanted to talk a little bit about is revenue. From a oftentimes from a marketing perspective, we think our job is to deliver the leads to sales, and then from there, they're on their own, make it happen. And and sales is also thinking about themselves. Give me the leads, we'll we'll run with it. How did you think about that continuum of of generating the leads through to closing the deals? Well, I think there's certainly um, it's evolved when you think about the marketing organization that just delivers the lead to the sales organization and the sales organization says, well, that's not the right lead or that's not enough leads. And the marketing team says, well, that that sales team is not following up on what I have. You know, it's the age old conversation back and forth when you're throwing leads over the transom. Um, What I believe needs to happen is that companies need to think more holistically about how their revenue comes in. That's from initial engagement with a prospect or a customer all the way through to close closed business and beyond with the customer life cycle. And, um, and companies that can adopt that um, revenue view 
of the world are going to benefit. The other thing is technology and systems have gotten so much better to transcend. So we're no longer throwing things over the transom, you know, like pulling leads out of one system and putting them in another system. That was the reality um, many years ago. Today, it is a, can be a seamless process if designed that way. And so I think that marketers today and sales leaders today um, are taking a much more holistic look at revenue and connecting marketing and selling. Um, part of that is because so much of the um, marketing mix today happens on the very front end where there's so much information out there for buyers that a lot of their decisions are made during what we would normally or historically called the marketing process before a salesperson even gets involved. And so ensuring that that is a connected business process, not just linked, not just integrated, not just passed off, but truly a connected business process is, I think, where uh, companies are going today. I wanted to close on a topic I know is near and dear to your heart. You you are a mother and uh your children have many friends. You post, posted a, a very poignant article on LinkedIn. To my 20-somethings entering the workforce, mom really does know best. And uh, you laid out 10 great points for folks that are that are breaking into their careers. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, what inspired that article? And in addition to the, the importance of relationships, which uh, we've heard about, what were some of the other pieces of advice you passed along? Yeah, so... Um it really can't, it's it's real. I did write it to my twenty somethings who at that time were both uh, doing internships. They were in their uh, final years in college and were both doing internships, both of them in large enterprise software companies in marketing. So um, you know our conversations around the dinner table were fascinating. Um, but as they started to look at what their next step was going to be post graduation, um, you know, there were a lot of questions that came up and there were a lot of things that I wanted to share with them. But anyone who has kids, especially teenagers or 20-somethings, know that sometimes your advice is not as welcome as you think it should be. And um, and so I thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna write down those things that I think are important and I'll just publish it on LinkedIn and perhaps they'll read it. Um, and they did. And it, it was also fascinating to me because, uh, you know, all of, as my kids were growing up, they weren't all that interested in what Mrs. Malin did. Like that just wasn't that interesting to them. But all of a sudden they're graduating and they're starting to look for jobs and they're fascinated by what I do. So um, so that is really the spirit at which I wrote it. Um, a little bit in jest, but mostly like real, like real advice. Um, and um, one of the, I would say one of the things in addition to relationships matter, the other one that really sticks out to me is um, being able to be a team player. And um, we teach our kids to be team players on, you know, on the sports fields and in different groups that they may participate in, but it's just as important in their professional career. And um, and ensuring that they're going to be a team player is really, really important. And that's something that they they know how to do and they just need to carry it forward. I love that advice. And uh, 
It, it is so true, especially being a team player. And, you know, sometimes I think we have the misconception that you only have to be a team player until you become the boss. Actually, I had a great discussion with Luca Lazaron, who's the CRO over at Sprinkler. And he said, when I was young, I wanted to be the boss. I didn't care what industry it was. What I just wanted to be the boss because he's like, I like to boss people around. But then um, he realized that the higher you get in an organization, the more important it is to be a team player, not the less important it is. And, and uh, the stakes are much higher if you can't figure that out. So investing early in your career and getting really good at that is tremendous advice for anyone. Yeah. I would also say trusting your instincts too. Um, we, all ha- we all have those instincts. And you know when you're doing something that you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this or maybe this isn't the right <laughs> thing for me. Like trust your instincts. You might yeah. not have the experience to back it up, but trust your instincts. Yeah. It's been a great conversation. One more question to close. As you look back over your life, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that's made the most difference for you? I would say building personal relationships. Somehow I knew you were going to go there. I know. I, I, well, I'm consistent, right? But it's true. It's true. Tell the people what they need to know and then tell it again. I love that. Exactly. But it is, it's a really important thing that, that I benefit from every day still. And, um, and it is important. And you, you know the people who spend time nurturing those relationships and those who don't. Yeah. Well, Heidi, it's been so fun. Thank you for your advice and for the great example that you've set for all of us that are out there trying to market and sell solutions. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.